0: Why is it that we have to have uh, signs that say, don't touch this because the paint's wet? First of all, I mean, is it me alone or do you want to touch it more if it says don't touch, right? There's something about rules. Why is it that we're certain stretches of 64, when you get down near the tunnel, you're only allowed to go 55, even though everybody else is going 65 or 70, and it seems like it'd be safer... So you do that, right? I mean, you go 55 when it says that, right? Okay, just wanted to be sure. Why do we have all of those things that seem so much to restrict? Of course, some may be more subjective than others, but I think we can be honest enough to admit that if we, if we had no rules, generally accepted rules in society at least... What I thought was appropriate and necessary might cross over what someone else thought was appropriate and necessary, right? I mean, I, I can't just take food from somebody else's storage area if if I wanted because well, my family's hungry. Well, so is theirs, and they stored up that food, right? there There are certain rules that seem universally acceptable and others that seem to us to be a little bit arbitrary. Why? Do we have to follow rules? Sometimes understanding the background of them gives us a little more ease in following them, but isn't it just a little bit true that rules just bug us, right? It's hard to follow rules, and yet there are reasons for rules that are beyond just the rules themselves many times. That's certainly true when we come to the 10 commandments and I have mentioned that we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and we're going to talk about the first 4 of the commandments because when Jesus summarized what what are the what are the most important what's the most important commandment Jesus was asked he said well basically it's love God with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself you can summarize the 10 commandments in those two commandments right you can you can have commandments that have to do with our love for God, which we're going to talk about today, and then commandments that have to do with our love for our neighbor will be next week. How do we treat each other? What are the things that we are responsible and obligated to do for each other? Why did God go through all of that? I want to begin, though, I want to Back up just a little bit and kind of talk about the point of the law, because it gets a little sticky, right? We we uh, we live under the new covenant, under the New Testament era of time, and we're often uh, we often hear people quote, "Well, we're not under the law anymore; we're under grace." So, what is the point of the law? Would be my first question for today. Why, in fact, do we have it anyway? If if we can't earn our way to heaven, then what is the point? So I want to I want to talk about the point of the law, first of all, by talking about its limitations. What can the law not do? And in fact, what was the law never intended to do? We saw last week the glory of God, right? The awesome majesty of God. It was an incredible scene at the mountain. Everybody is just practically cowering, and in fact, when... Uh, when Moses recounts it to them later, he says, you even told me, please don't let God even talk to us anymore. It's too terrifying. You tell us what he wants us to know. There was this incredible scene of awesome majesty. Part of that was preparation for the giving of the law. Now, when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about the big picture, the law that we will find in the Old Testament if you were to to read on through. I'll save you counting. There are, uh, I think, as far as I know it, there are 613 of them, specifically, that are designed to talk about specifics of of a ceremonial nature, specifics of how we're supposed to function in society. There just are differing sorts of things. These ones are very universal and in many respects are fleshed out by the rest of the law. So we're going to talk about these for the next two weeks. But what were the limitations? What could the law not do? So I want to go to the New Testament and talk about a couple of things first of all. And and the first one is from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, uh, which I think is on there. What can the law not do? It cannot make us perfect. Hebrews chapter, here it is. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make those who draw near perfect. The law can't make you perfect. So what what do we know? We know the gospel. We've talked about it many, many times here, right? The gospel is, I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And if I'm going to get into heaven, I have to be absolutely perfect. I cannot be mostly right. I can't be 90% good. I have to be perfectly righteous. That's why it's important that Jesus lived the perfect life I could never live. The law can't make a person perfect. It cannot justify you. It can't make you right with God. For by the works of the law, Romans 3.20 says, no one, no human being can be justified. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, that's an interesting thought, right? It can't justify us. Galatians 2 and verse 21 talks about this same principle. I don't nullify the grace of God. He's talking about the law in fact the verse prior to that is is the one we're familiar with about that for me to live is christ and to die is gain and so on right i don't nullify the grace of god he said if righteousness were through the law then christ died for no purpose i can't become righteous i can't become perfectly holy i can't be made right in the sight of god by following the law well then what was its purpose why did god give us the law What were all of those expressions, all in some cases in such detail? But even these 10, why did God give this to us? If it couldn't get us to God, what was its purpose? I think there are a number of them. One we talked about last week was to reveal the holiness of God, to let us see his glory. If you want to know the kind of person that can be in God's presence, That's the kind of person. That's how holy God is. That's how high the standard is. And God doesn't live up to the standard. He is the standard. And the law was the expression of the character and the holiness of God. So it helped us see how perfect God was. Secondly, it reveals man's sinfulness. Romans chapter 7 talks about This this idea that I wouldn't have known sin until the law, right? What should we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law a bad thing? No, no, by no means. Yet, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, for I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead or lies dormant. That's why we want to touch a wall when it says don't touch, right? It's it's why there's just this impulse in us because we wouldn't have even thought to walk by and touch that wall, except there's a sign on it that says don't touch this wall. What do you mean don't touch this wall? I will touch that wall, even if I come back with a handful of paint, right? The law reveals my sinfulness to me. See, most of us think we're, we're doing pretty good. Most of us are pretty content with, you know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Because we tend to compare ourselves with others. Of course, never with others who are doing better, right? Always with others who are just doing a little worse. Well, I'm not as bad as whoever. The law reveals that I am sinful, The law, in the case of Israel, distinguished his people from everybody else. Psalm 147 said, he, speaking about God, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes, and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They don't know his rules. Praise the Lord. God demonstrated the uniqueness of his people by giving to them the law. couple of more things that I think are important about this. Why did God give us a law? What's the purpose? I think it was to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about how the law was, it describes it as a schoolmaster. The, the law was there to school us, to keep us in line until the coming of Jesus. It was there to, to help give us guidance until Christ came. And it was to illustrate, we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10 uh, and verse 1, that the law has but a shadow of good things to come. That's talking about Jesus and the righteousness available in Christ. It doesn't have the true form of these realities. Colossians says the same thing, talks about the substance of these realities belonging to Christ. So Christ fulfilled the law. Boy, I tell you what, every time I find myself battling with my sinful nature, I am grateful that Christ fulfilled the law for me. If it depended on me to make sure I followed every rule and regulation, I would be in huge trouble. I suspect you would, too. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 17 talks about that. This larger body of the law, Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's not that they are of no use. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's useful for us. It shows us God. It helps us appreciate the work of Christ. Jesus brought it to completion. He fulfilled the purpose of the need for something to lead To him. And the law still gives us guidance. So, lest you get to to the uh, bit of confusion that, well, I'm not really under the law, right? Because it's in the New Testament, it said we're not under the law, but under grace. So, something has changed, but it just means that the law no longer needs to bring us to Jesus. Jesus came to us. And so now we know, we know what has to happen you need to know that of these Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament under the New Covenant, and in fact, in many cases, expanded on. Next week, when we talk about murder, we're not going to talk about hating people. Well, I'm not preaching, so maybe we will. But um, we, we won't necessarily only talk about adultery because Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. So it isn't that that the, uh, the law is no longer of any use. These things are all still very, very important to us. But what is the focus of the law? That's the second thing I want to talk about today. What is the focus of the law then? If it's not there to help us get right with God, if it's not there to help us live a holy life, why do we have the law. I think the focus of it is on God. And I find four things here that are useful to me to help think about how do I relate to God? How do I demonstrate my love for God? And I do it first with my allegiance. And all of these are given with a reason. Now, in the first one, The reason is given first. So this is what Exodus 20, the first few verses says. God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You don't have any other gods. Your allegiance is to be to me alone. No other gods, because I am the Lord your God. He gave the reason first. God is wholeheartedly committed to his people. Wholeheartedly. He's the Lord. All of these words in here, the way he describes himself, I am the Lord. I am the supreme, self-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable God who has committed himself in relationship to you. In fact, I am your God. Now, an interesting word. I am the Lord, your God. That word, your, is singular in the text. Perhaps related to the fact that it says he's speaking to the children of Israel corporately. But perhaps he's reminding us that the relationship we have with God is also personal. I am the Lord your God. He is the Redeemer. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them from the house of slavery, who brought them out of their bondage. Therefore, you are to be wholeheartedly devoted to me. He is wholeheartedly devoted to his people with whom he has entered a covenant. So he expects his people to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. That doesn't seem too much to ask, does it? Martin Luther said this, though, about what is our God. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is properly your God. So I got to thinking this week, what are some of the things that we tend to rely on? Maybe on our spouse. We rely on our spouse to give to us things that, No one else can give to us, or the spouse we wish we had, or perhaps our job. No, we got to work, right? If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That's in the New Testament. That's, That's a fair principle of Scripture. We have to work. But do I trust in my work? Is my allegiance to my job? Is my allegiance the thing that I'm relying on in my life and and for my livelihood, am I relying on the things that I've invested? Am I relying on my possessions? What am I relying on? It speaks to my allegiance. Here's what I'm most committed to, because God is wholeheartedly, unswervingly devoted to his people. Therefore, we should be wholeheartedly, unswervingly committed to him. Secondly, it talks about worship. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the, the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is talking about my worship. You're not to have idols because I don't share, God says. I'm a jealous God. Now, we don't like jealousy, right? Right? We struggle with some of these things because we want to form God in our image, not recognize that we're formed in his. And for us, jealousy is almost always a bad thing because it's almost always self-centered. Well, I'm jealous because they're doing this and I want them to do that for me or whatever it happens to be, right? Jealousy is not usually looked at as a positive trait, yet God describes himself as a jealous God. It helps us to understand that when the people went after idols and began to give their, uh, I- their attention and their worship to other gods, supposed gods, it was considered spiritual infidelity. God is supremely faithful he does what he says he will do. God never goes back on his word. He punishes those who deserve punishment. He is steadfastly loving those who follow him. Idols were made to give people something to worship. It wasn't too long after this that you may know the story of the golden calf. and Moses is up on the mountain and... and uh, Everybody says, come on, give us, give us a God to worship. Weren't you just at the mountain? Aaron probably should have said. No, no, we want to see one. We want something right in front of us. We're a visual people. So, okay. So he said, give me all the gold you can give. And as he reported it to Moses later, I threw all the gold in the fire and out came this calf. Imagine that. But of course, he crafted it. And said to the people, here, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. Because we want something we can see. We want to bring God down to our level. You know why idolatry itself is so bad? Because there's nothing we could fashion that could ever adequately describe God. So we are always minimizing who he is, some aspect of his character. When we say, and that's why so many other nations had multiple gods, because they came to realize, well, no one god is likely to have all of these things. So there's the sun god and the moon god and the god of the earth and the god of this and the god of that, right? There are all sorts of these other mythological gods When God is all in all and fills all, when God is so great and so majestic that I make something that gets my worship, it's no longer adequately defining God. It is bringing God down to my level, letting me help define who God is. So what are our idols? I think it was John Calvin who said many, many uh, decades ago, our hearts are little idol making factories. We have things all the time that get our worship, that get our, that get our devotion. Sometimes even our service for God. Matthew chapter 7 people, uh, Jesus said, People will come to God and say, But Lord, we've, have not we not prophesied? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done wonders? in your name, and you can add whatever your thing is. But Lord, look what I've done for you. My service for God cannot afford to become an idol, that it gets my worship, it gets my attention. Even our services, even our buildings can become an idol to us. I think even the blessings of God can be the thing that gets our, our interest. I'd I don't necessarily just want God. I want, I want God's blessings. I think we have to be careful. Worship only God for who he is. As our, as our senior pastor, Sean, Pastor Sean always says, we worship the God who is, not the God of our making. We design what we think God has to be like and how he has to function. And so we worship that picture of god whether we have something on a shelf somewhere that we're bowing down to or an image that we're giving our worship to so it is about our allegiance it's about our worship it is thirdly about our reverence verse 7 is pretty simple do not you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for because the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain one of the other pastors at coastal Said, uh, in effect, this is God saying, I care how you talk about me. I like it. I like that. I like that idea because God doesn't hold us guiltless. As a sign of their respect for God, the people were to exercise the greatest caution when talking about Him or invoking His name. They were to say nothing that might detract from a true appreciation of His nature and character. Now, I know. Immediately, our mind goes to profanity, right? Don't don't say those terms. And in in the culture in which we live, uh, I I think God knows my heart when I use this phrase that I'm not using it flippantly, but people say, oh my God, all the time, right? And if you would challenge them on it, what would they say? Well, I didn't mean anything by it. But, But isn't that the definition of doing something in vain? I didn't mean anything by it. We should be careful about how we talk about God. But I think it's beyond profanity because, for the most part, I don't think we're probably uh, battling with that a lot. I wonder, just to stir up a bit of a nest, if it could be related to when we start invoking God's name when it comes to our opinions about politics. Well, I think God would say such and such. Really? How does the person with the other opinion who thinks God would say what they're saying, how do we account for that? Perhaps we should stop trying to bring God into our opinions on politics and just simply say, well, I think, because most of that is, well, I think. It's okay, we're allowed to think, and we can think differently from each other. It's okay. But we want God on our side. Remember in the early in the book of Joshua when when uh, Joshua was out walking around one evening and the angel of the Lord was there, and what was his question? He said, "Are you on our side or on their side? What, did, what was the answer? Neither. <laughs> that must have been rather shocking to Joshua. God wasn't on the side of the Israelites. He was there because, he wanted them to be on his side. There was only one good side to be on, and it wasn't Israel. It was God's side. And as much as we are on the side of God, we're in the right. But we don't ever need to invoke God to get him on our side. Perhaps it just has to do with not giving his respect. Now, listen, I want to I back up because we think this is a little overblown sometimes. Well, don't be so worried. I mean, it's just... It's just a name. Back in the Middle Ages, there were people who were so concerned about not even speaking the name of God incorrectly that they came up with a term that we use to this day in many of our English translations, and it's the name Jehovah. God identified himself with four letters in in English transliterated YHWH, Yahweh. It was the Lord Which, when you see all capitals, that's what that is. We usually translate it Jehovah in our English Bibles because in the Middle Ages, there were a group of people that were like, We don't want to, we don't even want to have people reading that word out loud because they might not pronounce it correctly and thus not give due reverence to God. So it was really serious. That's where we got that name Jehovah from. They took the consonants from that name Yahweh and they took the Vowel sounds from the name Adonai, which is like Lord, like yes, my Lord. If if you watch, uh, you know, Middle Ages stuff, and they put the vowels in there and got Jehovah. So they wouldn't be pronouncing that name incorrectly. Perhaps we should spend a little more caution giving reverence. But I wonder if it's not just revering his name, but Due reverence to God himself. I wonder if I took some time to show you what was in my bank statement and what kind of things I spent money on, if it would demonstrate that I had a, a incredible commitment to revering God even in my finances or the places where my mind goes when I'm quiet and inactive. What do I think about? What are the things that have my attention most? What do I revere We should be cautious about reverence for God. And lastly, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord will created, made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I I don't intend to take a, a long time dealing with it, but this principle of Sabbath, God is saying regarding our time, keep the Sabbath because I did and I blessed it. You need to include in the rhythm of your life, Sabbath rest. Sabbath provides an opportunity for rhythm. Sabbath gives us a break to refocus our attention and our devotion on God. So listen, I'm not even going to ask, are you keeping these four? Remember when the rich young ruler, we call him in the New Testament, came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Because we always want to know, by the way, as humans, what do I have to do as if we can do anything to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, well, you know the commandments, right? He said, well, yeah, I've kept them all since I was a kid, which, first of all, really, Probably not even as a kid, let alone since you were a kid. And Jesus said, One thing you lack go sell all that you have and give to the poor. I wonder if Jesus was pointing out to him, You have an idol in your life. You're wealthy, and it's really important to you that you be that way. It defines who you are. You have an idol in your life. He was simply letting this man know you are not holy. He didn't have to walk away saddened. Jesus would have given him the good news if he'd accepted the bad news that he was not fully adhering to the law. So, as always, let me give you a few thoughts, and I kind of just want to review this last bit this morning. Are you wholeheartedly devoted to God? What are you relying on? What are you you depending on? Do you need to root out any idols from your life? Well, listen, having things isn't horrible. Even having money and possessions isn't inherently bad, right? I mean, Timothy talks about wealthy people. Instruct those who are rich in this world What, to get rid of all their money? No, not to depend on their riches. Don't make them an idol, but use them for good. Use them to serve God. Thirdly, do you show God the respect and honor he deserves? I hope you're planning to enjoy some Sabbath time today, some rest. I hope you're having some time that you're kind of checking a little out of what's been happening this week and trying to keep from looking way ahead into next week but just focusing on the lord today but do you show him the respect and honor he deserves even in the way you communicate how are you exalting god are you being careful to show him reverence listen We have God as our heavenly father. There's something unique and intimate and precious there. But you show appropriate reverence to your father, right? Well, you should. I, I remember that lesson as a child. From one end of the house to the other, I stuck my tongue out of my dad one time. I don't even remember what happened. But I do know he caught me before I got to the top of the stairs. Because I did not disrespect my father. But there's nobody in this world that loved me more than my dad. We had an incredible relationship. But I knew not to disrespect him. We can, we can become so enamored with the intimate and the informal that we forget that God is still exalted and holy. And then, man, two pieces to this one. But have you come to Christ? If you're here, if you're if you're listening, if you're watching the the live stream, or watching this by video later, or you're you're here in our uh, in our room, man, if you've never come to Jesus, this is why you have to. You can't do this. Listen, I. Just these first four, right? Let alone, forget all 10, forget 613. I can't do this. No matter how hard I try, I cannot keep all the law. Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law. And so, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I fall short. I acknowledge that this isn't me. And... I believe in the gospel that Jesus, God, came in the flesh, God the Son, came and lived the perfect life, lived, fulfilled the law in a way that I could never do no matter how hard I try. And largely as a result of that, (laughs) they took him and killed him. And he paid the penalty for sin and was buried in a tomb and on the third day came back to life again. And I repent of my sin, I believe in the gospel, and I receive Christ. And that's when, as we sang earlier, death is arrested and my life begins because I have the hope that is mine in Christ. So if you're here, man, come to Christ. Please don't leave here without getting that cared for. Mark it on your Connect card. Put in there, I'm interested in a relationship with Jesus. Somebody will get in touch with you. We will get a hold of you and talk to you about that. If you're watching online or watching our live stream, just mark something that you can get online and send a note. Get info at gocoastal.org and say, listen, I was listening to, to Wilson down in Hampton, and I'd love to talk to somebody. I would love for that to happen. And for those of you who I know is the majority who have already trusted in Jesus, I hope that studies like this will help you be grateful again for what Jesus accomplished for you. Because Jesus didn't make me perfect. Jesus is perfect, so God sees me as perfectly righteous in Christ, not in myself. It gives me such hope, gives me such joy to know that God views me in terms of my account with him as perfectly righteous because of what Jesus did. Man, I hope that's true of you. I hope that uh, encourages your heart this morning. So listen, the team's going to come back. We're going to sing another song before we head out of here, but I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll come back and do our blessing and go. Father, thank you so much for the reality of the gospel. Thank you that it rescues us from our inability and our incapacity to honor you, to, to live rightly before you we know that we cannot live perfectly we know that we cannot be holy on our own we have proved it over and over again so thank you for jesus who came and lived perfectly so that we could have his righteousness applied to our account so i pray that you would remind us of that today and even as we sing here lord would you just remind us of the reality of who we are in christ and lord i pray for the one or more that's listening that doesn't know for sure that if they were to die today, they'd be rightly related to you. I pray that they would have the courage to come and talk. Let us us show them how they can know for sure their sins are forgiven and they're rightly related to you and on their way to heaven.